Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is May the 24th, 2022. As always, I'm talking to you from the very fine city of San Francisco on the west coast of the United States in Northern California. San Francisco, though, may have had better days. We tend to think of the world, I think, in cinematic terms. We're going to be talking cinema today. The greatest film, in my view, ever made, but certainly the greatest film ever made about San Francisco was uh, Hitchcock's 1958 movie, Vertigo. And one of my favorite scenes in the book takes place in an imaginary office um, in the uh, shipyards of San Francisco between uh, Scotty, the movie hero, and a man called Gavin Elster, who turns out to be a villain. Uh, they have this remarkable exchange. Elster says to Scotty, setting him up for a terrible crime, Elster says, San Francisco's changed. The things that spell San Francisco to me are disappearing fast. Um, and then he looks at an old photo and says, I'd like to have lived here then. The color and excitement, the power, the freedom. This imaginary version of San Francisco, the old San Francisco, is one, of course, that's always existed uh, in our imagination. And that's what Hollywood is so good at, it imagining uh, a dramatic past, a better past, certainly a glorious golden past. We're going to be talking golden pasts with my guest today, one of uh, America's most distinguished men, both of Hollywood and of Washington, D.C., George Stevens Jr. He has a new autobiography out. It's called My Place in the Sun, Life in the Golden Age of Hollywood and Washington. He's joining us from Georgetown uh, in Washington, D.C. today. George, a real honor to have you on the show. Thank you so much for uh, your life uh, in the sun uh, and for this new memoir, which um, is a wonderfully uh, rich narrative about your life and your relationship with your, fa with your father, another very distinguished filmmaker, George Stephen. Uh, George, to begin, and I apologize for the rather long-winded introduction, <laughs> uh, the subtitle of your book is Life in the Golden Age of Hollywood and Washington. Are you nostalgic for that world, that golden age of Hollywood and Washington? It doesn't seem as if we're in that world anymore. No, we're not. And I really don't live in nostalgia. You know, I, I live in the times I'm presented. Um, but I did have this extraordinary experience uh, growing up in Hollywood and working in Hollywood and then having a, a change uh, at age 29 where I went to Washington and was involved in another kind of life while still maintaining my uh, association with Hollywood and the movie world. George, is there a connection between the glory years of Hollywood and of DC? Um, you've 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 got one foot in each world. You, um, I think, you produced a, um, uh, a wonderful uh, documentary about Obama, perhaps the most glamorous, most Hollywood-like president, uh, certainly after JFK. You also uh, produced a film about JFK, Years of Lightning. Um, is there a connection between 
the drama, the glorious drama of Hollywood and the glorious drama of Washington, D.C.? Well, I, you know, in, from, from my frame, from my standpoint, uh, I came to Washington in 19, February of 1962, which was the golden years of John Kennedy. Um, and it was just the beginning of the bi-coastal concept. I was bi-coastal starting then and still am now. And, and Washington began to take on characteristics better known in Hollywood with uh, politicians becoming public personalities. Uh, 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 a cynic of the day said, uh, politics is show business for ugly people. Um, and the, the, the connection between the two has really grown and the similarities have become more apparent. What do you make, George? I mean, JFK, of course, was a notorious womanizer. Um, he wasn't ugly. He, he had the looks of a Hollywood star, too, and behaved perhaps like an, a Hollywood star. Do you see a connection between the scandals and the Me Too movement and indeed the, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement and the crisis both of Hollywood and of Washington, D.C. in the 2020s? Well, certainly both communities are involved in those uh, issues or uh, challenges. Um, in that sense, uh, there's, there's common ground. Your autobiography, My Place in the Sun, um, Life in the Golden Age of Hollywood and, 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 and Washington, um, deals with a remarkable life. Um, and uh, much of that life is literally or metaphorically dominated by your father. You weren't the original George Stevens. There was a George Stevens before you, your father. You're the junior. Uh, he was actually born in Oakland, California, just over the bay from where I'm talking to you from. How is it? How has your life been growing up? And, and I use this word carefully, George, uh, in, in mm. the shadow of such a great man. He he was directed, of course, a, a Place in the Sun, which is uh, the reference, uh, the 1951 drama film, uh, many other great films, Swing Time uh, from 1936, 1943, The More the Merrier, uh Shane 1953 how is what's life been like for you growing up as the son of one of Hollywood's most distinguished movie directors well in the broad picture of uh, wonderful and advantageous um I grew up we lived in, in in Toluca Lake a little village in North Hollywood um and I was raised a kind of apart from the music, from the movie community. Although Bing Crosby and his wife and five sons lived on the next corner and Al Jolson and Ruby Keeler lived down the street, but it was mostly kind of ordinary people in our little community. Um, so I wasn't totally involved. When, in the when movie you say world. ordinary, what do you mean? I mean, uh, uh, accountants and school teachers and uh, people who lived normal lives as apart, as apart from those in the more celebrated in the movie community. So I, I had that advantage, you know, that kept a little bit apart from it. 
And then when the time came, uh, I took an interest in my father's work. Uh, he, came, he was away at war for three years. And he came back and he made a picture about San Francisco, I remember Mama. And then when I was, uh, had graduated from high school and the summer I didn't have a, a job and he offered me something to do. And he gave me two tasks. One was to take Theodore Dreiser's An American Tragedy, parts one and two, the novel, and break them down scene by scene, character by character into two notebooks. He was about to start the screenplay for A Place in the Sun based on Dreiser's An American Tragedy. The other job was to read the books and plays and uh, that came over from Paramount uh, recommended to him. And at 17, I was reading a lot of kind of treacly love stories that were kind of hard going for a 17 year old on uh, warm summer afternoons. But one day a small book came and I read it in the afternoon, a novel. And I went to my father that night and he was in bed reading. And I walked in and I said, dad, I said, this is really a good story. I think you ought to read it. And he, he said to me, why don't you tell me the story? So I found myself pacing around his bed, doing my best to reconstruct the story and tell him the story of Jack Schaefer's novel, Shane. And uh, I realized later that this kind of casual offer of working for him, um, I think he saw it as an opportunity for me to discover whether I had any interest and whether I had any aptitude for his world. And the next summer I was uh, uh, in Jackson Hole, Wyoming with the title company clerk working under the Teton Mountains on the production of Shane with Alan Ladd and Gene Arthur and Van Heflin and Jack Palance and Elijah Cook. You came from, uh, you come from royalty essentially, uh, George, for better or worse. And not only was your father, famous film director, George Stevens, your mother was Yvonne Howell, a very famous uh, movie star. And even your granny was a movie star, Alice Howell. Um, do you think that that old Hollywood world was slightly insular, that it was a little closed, almost aristocratic? You know, it's hard for me to say, uh, uh, Andrew, because, you know, I, I was a child and I was new to the world. I mean, um, you, so I assume that even as a child, you you realized that your family was unusual, that you had a father who was a movie director, a mother who was a film star and a granny who was another film star. This wasn't regular. You weren't well, my an mother, ordinary my, person. My, yes, my, my, my mother uh, started as an actress and finished in three years when she had me. So she was not a film star. Um, my grandmother, Alice Howell, was. She was in the first five films that Charlie Chaplin directed at the Senate studio. And then she became a, a, a star in her own right and made a hundred silent films. But she was retired when I knew her. And I don't think I ever discussed uh, movie making with her. Um, it, it, it was just, I was living a really a somewhat normal life. Um, but there, uh, there was an incident 
that was really kind of shaping to me, um, which I remembered, but didn't realize until I was writing the book, uh, the meaning of it. And it was in 1951 when, when I went to the Academy Awards with my father and I sat next to him and Joseph L. Mankiewicz came on the stage. He had been the Oscar winner for directing the year before. And he read the names of the nominees. Uh, John Houston for the asphalt, John Houston for the asphalt jungle, William Wyler for detective story, Vincent Minnelli for an American in Paris, Elia Kazan for a streetcar named Desire, and George Stevens for a place in the sun. A exemplary list, one might say, and. A classic uh, list. You don't get those lists today, do you, George? You know, you really don't. I mean, the, um, the Oscars this year were a catastrophe, dominated by a, a rather childish spat between two minor actors or comedians. Uh, uh, things have fallen quite dramatically since those yeah. golden days of your father. And and those were all admirable, admirable films. Magnificent John, films, all of them, all classics. Yeah, and John Huston, William Wyler, Minnelli, uh, Kazan, were friends of my father's and became friends of mine uh, in my grown-up years. Uh, but coming home from the Oscars, dad was driving the car. My mother and my father's actress mother were in the back seat. And the Oscar was on the seat between us. And at one point, he looked over at me and kind of smiled and said, you know, we'll have a better idea what kind of a picture this is in about 25 years. Now, this the best films get the Oscars. I mean, as I, you know, I introduced Vertigo at the beginning. Uh, Hitchcock never won an Oscar. That film didn't win any Oscars. Do you think that the Oscars are a good historical memorial to the to the great works of Hollywood? Uh, no, I mean, yeah, to a degree. I mean, people get recognition. I mean, in that year, I would say you had five genuinely accomplished pictures. But what my father was saying. Um, it, it, this was before Cinematheques, before streaming, before DVDs, pictures came and went. Yet he was saying, we'll have a better idea of what kind of a film this is in about 25 years. I mean, he'd, he didn't finish high school. He educated himself at Glendale High School and read O'Neill and Shakespeare. And, and he understood, he grew up in the theater with his parents. And, but he understood that the that the true evaluation of art comes over time. Do you think the same is true, though? Uh, I, I couldn't agree with more. There's that famous Chinese throwaway remark. Uh, I think it was um, Chow Enlai who was asked, I think it may have been by Nixon, what he thought of the French Revolution. And Chow Enlai said, too early to say. Um, <laughs> do you think the same is true, not just of movies, but of Hollywood and the sort of the whole culture you grew up in here? Here we have um, uh, a photograph of you with uh, Sidney Poitier. You produced Separate but Equal, a film about Supreme Court desegregation. Your, your life has involved a lot of political work, particularly um, highlighting racial injustice. That Hollywood world of the 1950s, of course, was a white world. Did you realize that at the time, George? Yes, I was conscious of that. You know, I write in the book about uh, in the sports world, uh, <clears throat> going to see USC played UCLA, 
and all of the of the players on the USC team were white, and there were two African Americans on uh, the UCLA team: Kenny Washington and Jackie Robinson. Jackie Robinson, who became a transformative figure in American sport. So I was conscious of that, and I not only produced, just for the record, but I wrote and directed *Separate but Equal*, which was about the uh, Brown versus Board, Brown versus Board of Education Supreme Court case that Thurgood Marshall, whom Sidney portrayed, uh, led the fight and argued the case before the Supreme Court, and Earl Warren corralled a nine-member jury into a unanimous unanimous decision saying that uh, segregation in schools was outlawed in the United States. George, um, you mentioned uh, Jackie Robinson, of course, very famously the man who desegregated baseball. Is there a particular African-American figure, a political figure, an actor, a writer who you think desegregated Hollywood? Is there a moment when everything changed? As we imagine, maybe it's slightly oversimplified when Robinson showed up on the base part on the base mm -hmm. bars playing for the Dodgers. It, it, that, it, and that and that took a long time to happen, but it happened very quickly with an immediate impact. Uh, Sidney Poitier, uh, among others, uh, was the one who kind of was the persona of that transformation. And he happened to be uh, a, a splendid human being and uh, a longtime friend of mine. But his, his work and, him, and his choice of roles, Sidney um, was very careful of what he, Sidney did not want to play any role that he thought might make his father feel diminished. In 1964, George, um, you um, you commissioned a, a very important documentary film, Nine from Little Rock, about uh, racial segregation in, in Arkansas. You're obviously a man who's dedicated much of their life to the, much of your life to um, addressing racial injustice in America. When did you become aware of this? Where, what, what changed in terms of your, you, as you say, you grew up in an idyllic world, uh, but clearly the world that, of Hollywood in the 1950s or of Los Angeles didn't reflect really the reality of America, did it? And certainly not. Um, it, I think I was always a little bit conscious of it because my father was making films about outsiders. And, um, but when I went into the Air Force um, as a second lieutenant and went to Florida, um, that's when I began to see firsthand uh, the kind of nuts and bolts of this segregated society that was less evident in Los Angeles. Your father also uh, was involved in, was he the director of the Diary of Anne Frank, the 59 movie? He was, and I was the associate producer, and I directed uh, the location scenes in Amsterdam. And I know you've even held the original... Uh... Frank's yes. book, but Hollywood, of course, was founded by many Jews. Um, but in the 1950s, there was a great deal of anti-communist hysteria, which perhaps one could argue was a, 
and dressed up anti-Semitism. What what are your memories of, of that period and of the, the paranoia around the left and particularly Jewish leftists? Well, uh, after I got out of college, I, I was supposed to go in the Air Force and it was delayed for a year because of the end of the Korean War. And I sat with my father and the two writers for eight months while the, the screenplay of Giant was being written. And during that period, the McCarthy hearings were going on and we were uh, taken away from our duties by the television in the corner of the room to watch the Army McCarthy hearings. And the, uh, he was really uh, the seed of a lot of the bad things and divisive things that are going on now. Um, and then I write in the book uh, a very important chapter about the dispute at the Directors Guild, the Screen Directors Guild, with my father taking one side and Cecil B. DeMille taking the other side, in which DeMille was trying to throw out Joseph Mankiewicz as president of the Guild. Yeah, and because, that's uh, uh, the, the Mank narrative, the Mank uh, documentary uh, sort of touches on that as well, a, a popular recent movie. Mm, yeah. Um, and uh, uh, he was trying to oust Mankiewicz because Mankiewicz would not agree to the entire union signing a loyalty oath. Uh, but this was an example of uh, red baiting and, you know, part of that uh, uh, vicious uh, thing that was happening at the time. George, unfortunately, or for better or worse, Hollywood seems to have got into sequels or, you know, part one, part two, that wasn't part of the movie business in your day. Uh, to what extent, though, is not movies repeating themselves, but history repeating itself? Uh, you talked about the show trials of the 1950s. I note that you made a movie about Obama and JFK. You haven't done one about Trump. I'm guessing you're not a big fan. Do you fear that we're returning to the 1950s with some of the 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 divisiveness, the ethnic and religious hatred on the right in American politics today? Well, th 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 this is a, a terribly divisive time. It's, 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 it's uh, I believe, worse than the 1950s. Wow, uh, worse? Yes, um, because, you know, our democracy is threatened. In the 1950s, there was a lot of bad stuff going on, but I never questioned whether the structure of our democracy was solid. And now you have to look at it and say that we are on a bit of a pre precipice of whether we can get ourselves straightened out. You know, we've spent a year uh, with a large segment, a majority of one party uh, being convinced or wanting to believe that Joe Biden is not a legitimate elected president of the United States. We've never had that before. And the Congress is terribly divided. Um, and it's, you know, this is not a, not a time for great optimism. George, you've spent your life, as I suggested, fighting against injustice. You've made films, you've been involved in films about, particularly about race. You've done documentaries about Obama and JFK. You also spent your life uh, committed, I think, to the 
to civic virtue, to the public sphere. You have been involved in the American Film Institute, with the Kennedy Center Honors. So you've led a, an exemplary public civic life. If you were starting all over again today in 2022, do you think the responsibility of young people is to fight for our democracy? You fought for Hollywood, you fought for creativity, you fought for free speech. But is the real fight today the fight for democracy? Yes, it is. And I, I would, would hope that the younger generation gets traction and, and that there are people within it who become active and, and committed to that, because that's, that's really how our democracy has always worked, by active public involvement. And uh, I'm really hopeful that, that we can count on this young generation with, its, with new thinking and, and traditional thinking and an understanding of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights to be leaders, to, to, to um, re-energize uh, the core principles of our democracy. We have to count on that. George, the subtitle of the book again, uh, My Place in the Sun, is Life in the Golden Age of Hollywood and Washington. Um, if your father came back now and saw a Hollywood dominated by Amazon and Netflix and Apple, what do you think he'd think? Well, I think he'd be uh, interested in, I mean, certainly be interested. He was always on the cutting edge, always on the cutting edge. He had the first Polaroid camera, the first uh, uh, head, phone with headsets. Um, but, you know, I think what would challenge him more, and you mentioned it earlier, this business of so much of the movie business being involved in, in sequels and, and popcorn movies for kids. Um, and I would, uh, you know, the big investment in movies in those days went to, in America, to David Lean, to Fred Zinneman, uh, William Wyler, uh, Hitchcock. Uh, now, the vast proportion of investment in movies goes to the uh, sequels. And uh, the people making serious films are working with a small, small portion of the overall budget for movies. Streaming has brought some new dimension uh, in that uh, good filmmakers are doing streaming, sometimes long series of films that are you know, very solid, uh, but uh, that in turn threatens the big screen. So it's a very uncertain time as to just how this is all you know, going to work out. What do you think of all the the multi-part series on that are streamed now on Amazon and Apple, these 12, 15, 20-part series. My thoughts is they are, they're way too long, that if a man like your father could have made A Place in the Sun or Swing Time or A Home is Where You Hang Your Guests in two hours, there's no reason why you need more than two hours for a for, for a creative piece of work. Why do we need 10, 20, 50 hour series? Well, I don't know about 10, 20, 50, but I'll give you an example. Um, 
you spoke earlier of separate but equal. You know, I wanted to make that story. I, I, I approached it first as a film. But it was a two-part uh, series. It wasn't a ten-part series. Well, but 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 the it's the two hours. It's the it, the um, you couldn't make it for a film because, or I couldn't because there was too much to tell in the story to really give validation to it and make it dramatic and compelling. And I went to CBS first uh, and to, to do it, you know, as a quote, mini series. And they said, gosh, they were really impressed with the story, but they said, uh, you know, you can't cast it. And I said, what do you mean? And they said, there's no actor who can carry uh, Thurgood Marshall for four hours. And I said, what about Sidney Poitier? And they said, we've been going to Sydney for, for, for 15 years. If you can say that Sydney will read the script, we will pay for it. So I went to see Sydney and told him what I wanted to do uh, and why it would take four hours and said, I understand you don't do television, but I hope you would consider this. And he said, and rather princely way he had of talking. He said, if you come with a compelling script, I will do this. So I was sentenced <laughs> to go away and write a script that depended entirely on one man saying he wanted to do it. But Sidney being willing to do it meant we could get the film made. So I think streaming presents opportunities, uh, you know, and there's some very good I mean, I think my threshold is 10 parts, but mm. uh, uh, Call My Agent, the French series, I absolutely love five, five seasons of it. And there are other examples. So what are you watching are, these days, George? I don't see a television behind you, but I'm sure you enjoy movies. Are you still going to the, the, the movie theater? I mean, they've been closed in COVID or are you watching everything at home these days? I've, I, I have not been going to the theater uh, as much, uh, uh, Andrew, uh, you know, partly because of COVID, but also there have not been that many films that I feel are so compelling. One recent experience in the theater, if I could tell you about it, uh, Steven Spielberg called me a year ago and he said, your father's giant is a masterpiece. He said, the dissolves for reasons that are technical and I won't elaborate on, could be improved by 4K restoration. Um, and he said, would you work with me on it? And I said, of course. And we arranged to do it. Martin Scorsese's Film Foundation provided money and Warner's mm. provided money. And three weeks ago at the Turner Classic Movie Festival in Hollywood at Grauman's Chinese, uh, Steven Spielberg and I introduced this glorious restoration of Giant, uh, three hours and 20 minutes. And to watch it on the big screen, an IMAX screen, this beautifully restored version, and to watch it with an audience and hear the laughter. Most of these people had never seen Giant. Some had seen it on television. You know, and it was just such a reaffirming experience of the greatness of the theater experience. And- Yeah, nothing beats the theater. I, I couldn't agree more. And this was in the theater, 
the, Ch the Chinese, where 65 years earlier, we held its premiere. And here was today's audience totally absorbed in it. It's a wonderful story. Those days have gone now. Um, what's replaced Hollywood, George? Is there anything? Is there anything hopeful to anything we can be hopeful about in America today? Hollywood is looking backwards at the giants of the past, like your father. They're not they're not producing great work anymore. Is 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 there an equivalent to Hollywood today? No, no. But in any know, sphere you... of life, I mean. When you, you, you've spent a lot of time in America, you're one of America's wise men. Can you read the paper when you get up in the morning? What are you cheerful about, America? No, this is a difficult time. I, you know, I, I don't want to be a prophet of doom, but uh, I, I cannot deny that you look at this story, you look at that story, you look at this story, and you say, well, well where's a good story in the paper or on on cable news, and there, there are more discouraging stories than good stories. And that's why my little uh, treatise a few moments ago on the importance of young people getting involved, we are at a critical time in our democracy. And it's going to depend on all of us to try and set it right. And, and we're going to have to find the path. You know, we need to restore our respect around the world. I think Joe Biden's done a wonderful job pulling NATO together uh, where it was really falling apart and consolidating this support for the outrageous Russian uh, war on the Ukraine. So we're going to have to find our better, better angels and move this country forward.